0: James chapter 5, we're going to read from verses 7 and 8 in a few moments. Page ten thirteen in your pew Bible. And then once you find that, you want to make sure you know where Matthew uh, 4, 5, 6, 7, the Sermon on the Mount is, because we're going to make our way there as well. Anyone who's taken a week's vacation, especially if your week's vacation is in a time zone that's 10 hours different than yours, to try to come back and get into the flow is not so simple. As you wake up at, you know, two o'clock in the morning, you're wide awake, and Then at two o'clock in the afternoon, you're, you know, you need a nap. Uh, and it's really the same with the sermon series. I, I feel like I'm the car who took an exit, you know, three weeks ago. And now I'm trying to, you know, like accelerate down the ramp to try to get into the, the flow of the Sermon on the Mount again. And so I want to take this time to, for really for me personally, and you'll just have to put up with the review, to, to try to accelerate down the ramp uh, by sort of circling back over the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to do that by reading... James 5, 7 through 9, and that will you'll see in a moment take us back to uh, the Sermon on the Mount. I want to thank David and and Sam for doing an excellent job while I was gone. I heard nothing but good reports, and really that would be expected. I gave them the two easiest topics, lust and divorce. (laughs) So it was pretty much low-hanging fruit for the two of them (laughs) while I was in India. Let's (laughs) read... Let's read James chapter 5, 7, 8, and 9. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth to be patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Here's our key phrase for this morning. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the Judge is standing at the door. Let's pray together. Lord, that um, this this pastor James is so helpful to us. Uh, we need patience. We need patience for your timing. We need patience for ourselves. We need patience as we deal with each other in a congregation, as also as we deal with the world uh, on the outside. It's it's easy to to grumble. It's easy to have a, a grumbling heart, and and a lot of that is we confess directed toward you. It's it's like you're just not doing it fast enough. You're you're not getting things in place for us in quite the way we had hoped. And so we grumble when we grumble against you and we grumble against each other. It's got to go somewhere and it causes us to have that kind of grumbling heart. And you're you're calling us here through this verse to, to establish something in our hearts, to nail some things down. And so I'm praying for that work to be done by your Holy Spirit this morning. Amen. James is the half-brother of Jesus, so he's not the disciple of Jesus. James, the disciple of Jesus, was the first of the disciples that was killed. So James, the half-brother of Jesus, eventually becomes a believer in his own brother, as odd as that would be. And he then becomes the, really the very first pastor and the main leader of the Jerusalem church. And if you notice back in chapter 4, if you have a heading for your chapter, especially if you're reading from the ESV, this is a, this particular segment is a warning against worldliness. So James is expressing in this letter a particular concern here for his church members. He, he's warning them against worldliness. He, he understands, even as just in the first generation Christians, that there's this power uh, powerful gravitational pull back to the world, and he sees he sees these 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 very first uh, rookie believers. They've they've come out of the world and into salvation and knowing Christ. But even as he's seen their excitement, he knows this. Powerful gravitational pull to get back into the world's ways. In fact, in James four four, he says, "Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility or enmity to God?" So he's very concerned about his congregation because they're they're fresh off the path path of the world. They still have a lot of habits, a, a lot of thoughts that would pull them back into the world, and so he's he's trying to help them not get connected back to the world and. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, James is observing that there's a lot of fighting and quarreling that's breaking out in his church. And the primary reason is the people in the church are bringing their worldly passions into the church. They have certain things that they just think ought to happen, and they're really connected to the way the world works. It's power, it's political structure, and whatever it is, and they import those back into the church. And he sees these members coming in, and just like two political parties, people who come with two different passions, they're colliding inside the church. And so whenever you have friendship with the world coming into the church... It doesn't matter if it's power or politics or racism, you're always going to have fighting. Fighting's going to begin. And then this is going to cause, verse 11 through 16, the brothers and sisters to begin to unfairly judge one another. See, whenever you don't have trust, trust, a lack of trust, especially in a church congregation and especially in a church leadership, a lack of trust always shows up in politics. See, I don't really trust the other person, and because I don't trust the other person, then I take a side. And then I begin to demean the other side because i got to make the other side look smaller or say they're definitely wrong or how foolish that is. And that is very easy for anyone to do. And we as leaders in the church, we always have to fight against that. It's not like you fight that battle one time and then it's over. Don't you wish sin operated that way? Yeah, I fought lust, and I'm done with that. I fought greed. I don't have that problem anymore. No, it's constantly coming up. And this import of the worldly passions can come into a church and create this confusion or conflict. And then I begin to judge or we begin to judge one another unfairly. And then it ends in boasting about ourselves. Just a sad spiral that James is watching happen in his congregation. So he wants to redirect that spiral, which is what he's doing in chapter 5, verse 7. You notice it says, therefore... So he's making this transition. I'm watching this sad spiral, and guys, I don't want it to go this way. Therefore, I'm going to try to redirect I'm trying to offer some help, verse 8. So I want you to establish your hearts. I want you to realize... That the Lord himself, he actually is coming. The judge is at the door. And, and, and when you think of this word establish, you want to think of it as um, maybe driving a stake into the ground. Think of it as if you, if you went camping. When you go camping, the very first thing you do probably is you set up your tent, right? So you get your tent out and you, you whatever you pop up your tent, eventually you've got to put stakes in the ground. And the reason you put stakes in the ground is because if overnight or over the weekend a, a storm comes, you don't want your tent to blow away. Now, when I was in middle school, I was a Boy Scout. I was a terrible Boy Scout. I mean, I, the only knot I know is the one that goes on my shoe. I know no other knots. And I think I was just, I was mostly really lazy. So everything they did seemed like a lot of work. I was like, good grief. And so when I went camping, I was like, Stakes in a tent. Let's just pop this thing up and move on. So I went camping one weekend, and I probably, like, stepped on the stake trying to think that was good enough. Well, guess what happened that evening? About 2 o'clock in the morning, giant storm comes up. Tent collapses. Tent front opens up. Water comes spraying into our tent. Three or four guys scrambling around now in a big, heavy, wet tent. Everything's get wet sleeping bag clothes Everything and i've got to use these things for the whole weekend So this is a really highlight weekend for me when I was in middle school I could hear the scout masters laughing at us at 2 (laughs) a.m They knew we had done such a sorry job They probably knew a storm was coming and they just let us just just have a terrible time Just so we could say hey storms are going to come And while it's not stormy, you've got to set these things down. Because when the storms come, some of them for our lives, they're going to be hurricane force winds. And if you have not driven some of these things down to say, this is a certainty. When dark clouds come on and you can't see the hand in front of your face, if you don't have some things established, if you don't have some things fixed, you're going to be in trouble. And that trouble's not just going to be a lesson. It's not going to be a laughing matter. It, it could really cave in your whole life. So, so that's what James is doing. He's trying to establish things. And I think as I transition over to the Sermon on the Mount, I think that's what Jesus is trying to do. Let's look at chapter 4 in Matthew, verse 17. This is, this is Jesus coming out of the wilderness, his very first sermon. He says this, From the time Jesus began to preach, this is his very first sermon, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so he's gathering his first disciples as you read through the next few verses, and then he has this sermon on the mount. It's right outside of his hometown called Capernaum. And he goes up onto this mountainside, and he sits down, and the people, sort of like a theater, sit down below him, and he begins to teach them these things. And it's as if he's saying, guys, if you want to follow me, you got to set some of these things down. You've got to drive some of these stakes in the ground because today at the beginning of my ministry, it's not that difficult. But in three years, it's going to be pretty difficult. If you live in India and you want to go to the northern mountains, it's going to be pretty difficult. So right here where it's a nice sunny day, when it's clear in your mind, let's drive some of these principled things about following Christ. These things have to be established. They have to be driven down. They have to be fixed. And I want to mention three of these things. First, you've got to establish that Jesus is actually the real king. And he's coming with an everlasting kingdom that can't just be a phrase can't be like a song title it can't be something you just say every once in a while you really really have to believe that i mean especially in our political culture right now because we're just on the heels of the election it's so easy for your hearts to be drawn in other directions and no matter what kind of environment you're in, you have to have this thing firmly fixed in your heart. And I just want to ask you, is that reality, does that inform you about you in the world every day? Not, not once every Sunday, and then I sort of just forget about it and live in a different kingdom, and then, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, every day, this is an informing your reality. Because if you don't, you're going to have trouble when these hurricane force winds come into your life. So Jesus is calling people as the king to enter into his kingdom, which also means he and James understand there are competing kingdoms. It's not a question. Listen, it's not a question of whether you're going to live in a kingdom or not and serve a king. The question is whose kingdom are you going to live in and what king you're going to serve. It's either going to be the kingdom of this world that has all kinds of different competitors or it's going to be the kingdom of Christ. There's not another option. And so Jesus knows, James knows, that there are other kingdoms at hand, and which is why in the Lord's Prayer, chapter 6, verse 9 of Matthew, this is what Jesus says. Listen, the very first thing you need to ask for in prayer, after you honor God's name, the very first thing you need to ask for is that, God, your kingdom would come. Why? Because when I pray, if I don't really have that established in my heart, guess what I'm going to pray for? My kingdom. How many times have you said, I spent so much time telling God about my kingdom, and here's how he can operate in my kingdom. Now, I'm not saying you can't pour out your heart to God. Don't hear me say that. But do you see what God's trying to, Jesus is trying to say here? I'm going to teach you about prayer, but here's the one thing you got to know. First of all, God is above all. His name is above every other name. Secondly, when you ask something for him, say, look, your kingdom come. Why? Because I come in and I've got a whole laundry list of kingdom items for myself. And those need to be reoriented. Many of them need to be eradicated. And so the very first thing we have to understand is, I'm inside this king kingdom, Jesus is the king, and I need to make sure I've got fastened down that I really want his kingdom to come. I want it to be happen in my life. But as I said, the, the, the competition uh, for other kingdoms to take your attention is tremendous. Let me just mention some examples. There's a term that I've used before, and I'll use it over and over again. It's false narratives. These are stories or beliefs that we have in our mind. And they may be hard to see at first, but they're really things that really influence your worldview or your thinking. And one false narrative in our culture that's particularly persuasive, I'm going to call it the identity narrative. And this is what the identity narrative, this is the story narrative. For the identity narrative in your head. Above all. You have to be true to yourself. That's a very powerful cultural narrative. That if you really want to live an authentic life. You must be true to yourself. If you're not true to how you were made. To how you see yourself as a person. Then you're not going to have real life. You've missed the way. That you were made a certain way, and the only way to have this authentic life is to be true to your natural self. Now, this comes out in a lot of ways, the easiest ways to think of the way it comes out in songs, especially songs on the radio. Lady Gaga, she writes this song titled Born This Way. I just want you to hear the false narrative In the title all by itself. See, especially if you're younger than me and you listen to Lady Gaga, you just hear, you, you don't necessarily hear these things, but you might hear them and sing them and they just become part of a narrative. That begins to instruct you how this world is supposed to work. And you're supposed to be true to yourself. You were born a certain way. You have a certain identity. And you cannot go against that identity. Or you're not going to really have an authentic life. This is what she says in one of her verses. I'm beautiful in my way. Because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track. I was born this way. No matter gay, straight, bi, lesbian, transgendered life, I'm on the right track. I was born this way. According to her, you were born on the right track. And in order to live an authentic life, you have to identify that and you must live that way. Now I want you to know for sure, certain, and with compassion that's the very opposite message of the Bible. I'm not trying to say it in some condemning way i'm I'm not trying don't hear me say that I'm just trying to say there is a king, he has a kingdom, he's established some truths. And to live the good and beautiful life that everyone wants, you have to live in that kingdom with that king. And what he tells us in the Bible, unmistakably, is that you and I were born on the wrong track. Nobody was born on the right track. And in order to live on the right track, you and I have to be born again. And once we're born again and we say, oh, my gosh, I was on the wrong track. God has helped me see I'm on the right track. And now I live according to how he identifies me, not how I self-identify. Do you understand that? That That's a very persuasive and powerful false narrative. And I'm telling you, if you don't know it, you get into a conversation with somebody who believes this false narrative, it's going to be hostile at some point. You don't need to do it in a condemning way. But you just need to understand you might have this false narrative running through your own mind. That's why James and Jesus say, we've got to nail some things down. Because you're going to come across these false narratives all the time. You might start singing the songs. And you want to be careful about that. The freedom or happiness narrative. Everyone loves this narrative. I love this narrative, but it's a false narrative. I should be free to live any way I want as long as I'm not harming anyone else and nobody has the right to tell me what's right or what's wrong. Again, in our, it's, this isn't every culture, but our Western culture, very powerful narrative. That Jesus is trying to nail down and say, I just want you to listen. I want you to know there's lots of false narratives. And once you come into the my kingdom and I'm the king, then you've got to listen to me. You can't listen to these other false narratives. Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount several false narratives that we'll get to. But let me just highlight a couple. The wealth narrative. Verses chapter 6, verse 18. The false, the the wealth narrative. That's the false narrative. Says things bring happiness. I'm only one purchase away from happiness. If I just had, and surely you know by now, you never. That's a mirage. Even if you get it, and for a few days or a week. I mean, think about Christmas coming up. You tear open your gifts. You give them to your kids. And in a week, they're broken, or all the parts are lost, or uh whatever. See, you can't repackage last year's Christmas. Maybe you do. Maybe you do regift. <laughs> Sorry, don't give them to me, okay? But you can't say, "Hey, I gave you that truck last year. I'm just repackaging it. Here it is." No, I need, I need the new truck. I need the better truck. The wealth narrative is a very powerful, false narrative, or the anxiety. Narrative 625. If I worry about something long enough. Now listen, because some of us have this false narrative. If I worry about something long enough, it'll prevent bad things from happening. I won't ask for a show of hands. But in your mind, you just think, if, if I'm really worried about it, somehow that's preventing something bad from happening. Un, untrue. Many people are trapped in that prison Chapter 7, verse 1, the improper judgment of other people. And th- this is how this false narrative comes out. And you, you never would say it this way out loud, but this is how some people think. I almost always sing, see things correctly. And thankfully, I'm here to fix you. These are not fun people to be around. And they were never going to say it that, that way out loud. But if you know them long enough, you know them. Because they're just never wrong. And it's a great kindness that I've come into your life to fix your problems right now. See, see Jesus, when he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount, he's, he understands you've come into a different kingdom. These are all the kinds of ways the old kingdom would make you want to think or believe this is real life, and I'm just telling you, Jesus, you got to get out out of those. You got to repent. And you got to turn around. And when you're when you come into the, to my kingdom, I have a totally different way of operating. So, so the very first thing we have to nail down is that Jesus is the king, we're in his kingdom, and we have lots of false narratives, false stories that still spin around like a tape in our head that we believe and that has to be reworked by the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of God's word. Now, now including on this point, it's not just false narratives that can distract us from Jesus, it's also fear. Fear is a very powerful motivation, and it can at times be used for good, but, but so often fear causes panic, and panic frequently results in you moving in a direction that's opposite of what Jesus would want you to do. Fear causes you to, to, to reach out and grab hold of something or someone thinking, Oh, this is the person or the thing that's going to rescue me. I'm, I'm so afraid of this event. So I, so I reach out and grab hold of this thing. Or I grab hold of this person and say, They're going to be my rescuer. Or this is going to be my rescuer. And let me tell you how it works in two different examples. First, when I was four, I have three older sisters. So I was four. I had a sister five, sister six, a sister nine. My dad was a, airplane, a helicopter pilot, he walks out from my house one day, he's in an accident, he's killed, he never comes back. Well, when you're four, understandably, that causes a lot of fear. I mean, the person you were holding on to could walk out and not come back. So what do you do when you're a four-year-old boy when that happens? You redouble your effort on your mom. I mean, this was not something I was thinking about. I didn't lay in bed saying, well, this is what's happening to me, and I guess i got to redouble. I mean, I'm four. This is just like my natural reaction is to say, hey, guess what? Your providers could walk out and not come back. So in my mind, I had a narrative, mom can't ever leave. Now, I didn't really even know that tape was playing necessarily all the time until about 18 years later when she says i have cancer and she died 12 months later and my world got shattered why fear i i had to have this person be around and, of course, I didn't really even realize how tight a grip I had until the, that person slipped through my grasp. And then I realized I'm not holding on to anything that can last. And that called us a great crisis of faith for me. But that was the moment that I really, truly went to following all after Christ. Fear a very powerful driver and sometimes you don't even know it's working until the thing that you thought you had to have slips through your hands. A second example of this fear, so easy to choose this week, is the nearly captivating power of politics and the news media. Every four years, both parties trade In the currency of fear. That's their major source of currency. And and they do it to stir up panic. And they hope that panic is going to cause you to say. I've got to have this person. I've got to have this party. Because if I don't have this party. It's a disaster. If I don't have this person. It's a disaster. Now I've voted many times. At 53 years old. And almost every time I hear some phrase that this is the most important election in my lifetime. (laughs) So I've been through several most important elections in my lifetime. Now, maybe some of them are more consequential than others. I'm not trying to say that in a way that makes them all sort of the same. But do you see what they're doing? They're trading on the currency of fear. So that you think it's the apocalypse if something doesn't happen this time. One of the phrases that came out of one of our recent uh, candidates' mouths said, I am the only thing standing between you and the apocalypse. Now, either side could have said this. I'm, I'm not trying to pick on one side or the other. Both sides use this very effectively And they have a very willing partner with the media that amplifies it. So every time you turn on the news channel, it's an alert. I'm like, my whole life's an alert. I can't get away from the television because every five seconds it's a new alert. But do you see what they're doing? They're just feeding into your fear. And Jesus Christ is trying to say, I am the king Do you have that nailed down? Not your country, not your party, not your person, not your health, not your mother, not your money, but me. So, do you have that stake firmly fixed? The second thing, these points aren't all the same length. You're like, Paul's been gone and he's ready to preach five sermons in a row. The second thing that has to be fixed is not that Jesus is just the king and he's got a kingdom that's going to last forever. Is is that if you've entered into this relationship with Jesus by his grace... And if you're saying he is the king and I'm beginning even now to live inside of his kingdom, then here's the stake that has to be driven down. You must, I must obey his commands. You can't, you can't just take Jesus and make his commands optional. I mean, I love him. I don't know so much about what he says. That's, that's not an option. When he calls us to repent, we've got to turn around. We've got to fight against those all old false narratives. And we've got to fight against our fears. And I want you to know, you should know this already, but so often what he wants you to do or how he wants you to think or where he wants you to go is completely counterintuitive to your normal way. That shouldn't be a surprise at all. I have been walking without Christ full speed in this direction. So when I repent, when he calls me to move in this direction, I shouldn't be surprised that it's very odd and awkward. That it almost feels like 180 degrees. Well, why? It's 180 degrees difference. And that shouldn't be of any surprise. It certainly shouldn't be any surprise if you just look at his interaction with his own disciples so many times they're 180 degrees outside of the way Jesus would think. Let me just remind you of some examples. The disciples were constantly informing Jesus that they wanted to be first. They wanted to sit at his right and left-hand side in the kingdom, the positions of power. They wanted to be the greatest. And Jesus says, "Oh, awesome guys, then be last, be slave and love your enemies." Any volunteers? No, 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 I don't want to be last, I don't want to be a slave, and I definitely don't want to love my enemies. Well, then you can't be great in the kingdom of heaven. Because the kingdom of heaven principles are 180 degrees different than the worldly kingdom principles. On one journey, Jesus was rejected from entering the town of Samaria. He's making his way down to Jerusalem. You go through Samaria, they heard him coming and say, we don't want you to come. You're barred from our... Imagine that you, you bar the creator from a city. Well, James and John, two brothers, didn't like this. And they said to Jesus, should we call fire down on this city? Uh, no, guys. <laughs> no. It's a bad idea. I, that's the opposite of what I would want to see happen. One day, parents were bringing their children Hoping that Jesus would lay their hands on him and pray for him, the disciples actually rebuke the parents and say, Jesus is way too important for your stupid little kids to come around. Jesus rebukes the disciples. This, this happens over and over and over, it's not hard to find. The point is that so many times it's going to feel counterintuitive. It's going to create painful moments. But but you've got to have it fixed that he's the king, that he wants us to have a good and beautiful life, and he's given us instructions primarily here on the Sermon on the Mount. And if I follow these ways, this is the way to the good and beautiful life. That's what you've got to have firmly fixed in your mind. Finally, and I'm going to end this section with a short video, and then we'll pray together. One of the most important gifts God gives to us as followers is prayer. And so this habit has to be firmly established. It's why he gives us the model of the the Lord's Prayer, chapter 6, 9 through 13. It's it's the two-way communication with God. It's because you and I are not primarily just intelligent beings. Meaning, we're not just brains on a stick. That you just get new information and then you have transformation. Oh, how I wish that would work. I would die for that to work. Because if, if that would work, if I just had the right information, would that always transfer to transformation? No. Most people know that smoking isn't good for them or eating too many donuts isn't good for them. So it's not just information. It's got to be something else. I'm not just a brain on a stick. We're primarily relational beings. I need somebody to hold on to. I need somebody to hold on to me. I need somebody who will walk with me and talk with me. But the way I enter into that. Is through prayer. I'm not saying coming here. And hearing me. Isn't helpful. Hearing the word of God preached isn't helpful. But if this is all you do. It's not a tight enough stake. Because you've got to ask God. Every day in prayer. What do you want me to be about today? Otherwise you're going to get easily. Carried away with false narratives and fears. Now, Bill Hybels is a preacher in Chicago, and he has this nice little story that I think well, you'll find helpful, and then I'll close us here in just a moment.
1: ...executive came down to talk to me after a service, and he had just become a Christian. I had, I had baptized him at the church, and so, and uh, he said, I just can't make time for a meeting with God. He said, you have no idea what it's like to commute downtown every day and you live in a different world. I, I can't. I just can't fit it, fit that kind of thing into my life. And I remember looking at this young guy, hard charging young guy, and and I said, "Here's my experience. And I'm not, you know, I'm only like 24 years old. So there it is. I said, I've always been able to make time for stuff I value. Just how my life works. If I value something, I'll make time to experience it. If I don't, I won't." And I'm making time for a meeting with God in my life. You do it any way you want. And uh, he wasn't too happy with me that day, I don't think. And I didn't see him for a while. And then afterwards, I saw him many months later. And when he came down to talk to me, he, his countenance was different. He felt different. His conversation was different. And he invited Lynn and me. He and his wife invited Lynn and me to go over to their house for dinner. So we accepted. He lived right in the area. And so we go over to their house. And uh, as we're kind of just having some appetizers beforehand, he takes me over to a rocking chair. And he says, you know how you challenged me to have a meeting with God and to just to make the time. He said, I I love rocking chairs, so I bought a good one. And you said that maybe if you're going to make this repeatable and enjoyable, you should look at some scene or vista that you enjoy looking at. And he said, I've got a little backyard here. And I love looking over the backyard. So he said, I I just bought this chair and I put it at my favorite window where I can overlook the backyard. And he said, I got up a half hour earlier, 15, 20 minutes, half hour earlier each day. The last several months I sit in the chair. I have a cup of coffee and he goes, I read God's word. I try to make sense of it. I ask him to speak to me by his word. Then I meditate on it, reflect it, apply it to my life. Then he said, I write some thoughts down in a journal and I pray. I pray that I will be more aware of his presence in my life. And I said, how's how's that going for you? And his wife jumped in and said, I'll tell you how it's going for him. He's a changed guy. What happens to him when he sits in that chair has changed him. He's more centered. He's a more gentle and loving man in our marriage and to our children. I was very impressed with this, that he could show me his chair, that he had taken the time, that he had fashioned a meeting with God that he looked forward to, because he liked the chair, he liked the view, he liked the coffee, he was a morning guy, and he fell into this pattern. Many months later, uh, I had coffee with him one time, and he said, I'm thinking about leaving my job in advertising. He said, it just it, um, I think I'm done with that. I said, where would you get these ideas? And he said, well, in my meetings with God in the chair. thats He's been putting those thoughts in my mind. I said, what are you going to do? And he said, maybe I'll just help you build the church. I said, well, no one's getting paid around here, you know. <laughs> and he said, well, I've done pretty well in advertising. I can hold on for a while, and, and uh, maybe if the church grows you know, then maybe they can help me and my family in some way. And I said, well, you better go back to that chair and see if God's really in this, because I don't want to take responsibility for your life and all this. And he said, okay, I will, and came back about a month later, and he said, you know, I I gave notice at at work, and if it's all the same to you, I'm just going to help you start building the church. You pay me what you can, but it's not a concern of mine. And this guy joined our staff, and I'm telling you, he was a hardworking, energized, joyful Uh, industrious individual that really, really helped our church and was on our staff for many, many years. One of the best staff members in the early days of the church. Then one day he comes into my office and he said, you know, I I still do that meeting with God in that chair, that rocking chair. And he said, God's been stirring in my life in my meetings with God. And he said, "Uh, a friend of mine starting a brand new church in Colorado. And I think I'm going to pack my family up and move to Colorado I said, can they support you? He said, no, I'm going to have to go back into the marketplace and uh, make some money because they, they can't afford anything. And uh, I said, you, are you ready to do that? And he said, you know, every morning I talk to God about it. And he said, I'm really fired up about it. So he said goodbye to him and he packed his family up and he went out and he went back into advertising, made a lot of money and gave most of it to the startup church. And it became a fantastic church. And then in that same chair that he moved out to Colorado, sitting at a window in the morning like he had done for many, many years now, he processed a bad medical report he got from the doctor that cancer had come his way. And he kept working and he kept supporting that church. And uh, he got sicker and sicker. It was a very fast-spreading kind of cancer. And uh, then he was hospitalized And one of the great losses he felt when he was in the hospital is that he didn't have his chair. And he died. Quite soon thereafter, and I did his funeral in Colorado. And I was talking to his widow, his wife, uh, at the funeral, reception afterwards. I said, that was something about that chair, wasn't it? She said his whole life changed in that chair.
0: See, I, I can't do that for you. You only you can do that for you. You can come to church, you can come to Sunday school, you can think you're a brain on a stick and get information. But, but the transformation where you would say, I feel God leading me to quit my job, to move to a different town, to process cancer. That, that has to be hammered every single morning in prayer. It cannot just be done for an hour on Sundays. So I, I cannot implore you enough. To find whatever the space, whatever the time of day. To say, I have a meeting with God. And and if I died, somebody who knew me would say, this is where their whole life got changed. If you don't, you're going to be ruled by false narratives, fears, and passions from the world. Let's pray together. Lord, this is, you know, maybe it's been a little too long here in this sermon, and it's hard to absorb all this information, but I'm praying that whatever hook that you have planted in the heart of every person here, that, that you would continue to, to fuel that and fire that so they would act on it, especially especially just these stakes of you are the real king that you have a real kingdom and you have commands that should be obeyed in order to live the life that you say that you've come to give life and that that relational component primarily happens as we enter into your presence through the power of your word with the presence of the Holy Spirit and we just stop from everything else that's happening and and ask you to to fill up our minds and fill up our souls and And give direction about your kingdom rather than us giving you direction about what you want us to do about our kingdom. Please, please reorient us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.